This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Citizen Watches. Go higher, go further, go beyond. Citizen's ProMaster collection makes watches for men who push their boundaries. And with Citizen's Echo Drive technology, your watch is powered by any light and will never need a battery. To find out more information, go to citizenwatch.com slash podcast. Again, citizenwatch.com slash podcast, where you can learn more about Citizen Watches and their Echo Drive technology. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Recent surveys have shown that anxiety and depression are up among school-aged children and teenagers, and parents and teachers are also reporting a decrease in motivation amongst young adults. My guests today argue that both issues stem from the same problem and can be solved with the same solution. Their names are Bill Stixrud and Ned Johnson. Bill's a clinical neuropsychologist, and Ned is a college test prep coach. In their book, The Self-Driven Child, they make the case that modern helicopter parenting and highly structured school schedules and highly structured after-school activities are part of the problem of increased anxiety and decreased motivation amongst young people. The solution, they say, is to start letting your kids make their own choices and experiencing the consequences of those choices, both the good and the bad. Today on the show, we discuss specific ways parents can let their kids make their own decisions and why this doesn't mean you let your kids do whatever they want. With each tip, they explain the science of why it helps increase intrinsic motivation. Lots of actionable advice in this episode. Even if you're not a parent, you're going to find the advice on developing intrinsic motivation to actually pretty helpful for grown-ups as well. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash self-driven child. Also, if you don't know this, we have all of our archives at the site along with full transcripts. If you go to artofmanliness.com slash podcast, if you want to read all the old transcripts, they're there. Go check it out. So now, Bill Strickrud, Ned Johnson, The Self-Driven Child. They join me now via Skype. Bill Stixrud and Ned Johnson, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So you guys wrote a book together, The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. Bill, you are a neuropsychologist, and Ned, yep. you founded a uh, SAT you know, prep test company. I'm curious, yeah, how did test, you- Test prep geek. Yeah, test prep geek. So I'm curious, how did a test prep geek and a neuropsychologist get together to write a book about children autonomy and children- giving them a sense of control. Well, you know, somebody introduced, uh, this is Bill talking, and somebody introduced Ned and I several years ago, and it turned out that we really deal with very similar issues and that kids come to me if, if they're having trouble. And, and I see a huge number of kids who have anxiety disorders, and depression, eating disorders, and, and Ned sees all these kids who are incredibly stressed out about high school and, and, and think that their whole future depends on how well they do on the SAT. And we, we, we started to talk about what we knew about stress and motivation. And what, what struck us was that, that a low sense of control is probably the most stressful thing you can experience. And we figured this must be related to this incredible proliferation of anxiety and depression in young people. And also we knew that, that, that you can't become truly self-motivated in a healthy way unless you have a sense of autonomy over your own life. So we, we, we both felt that, that, that so much of our work is trying to reduce the extent to which chronic stress screws up kids' life and trying to help them develop healthy motivation. So we just started to think this is a really powerful organizing construct. 
And, and my job as a, as a test curve guy is, is, is helping kids be successful on things that, that, at least in theory, matter a great deal to them anyway. You know, doing their best on something that matters a lot to them when they feel under a lot of pressure. And I just had the experience over and over of having kids who were really capable go, you know, and it, it performed at a high level in practice and then going the, the day of the test and underperforming. And it, it, if, if it was once or twice, it was sort of anomalous. But when I kept seeing it over and over, I tried to figure out kind of what happened there. And the more the more I started learning about how brains work and how kind of optimal performance started to pay attention to the things that improve brain function. We, in, the, in the book, we talk about, you know, there's a, a certain amount of stress is good, but, but, but too much stress is, is, is distress, right? And so pulling kids back from uh, too much pressure to the point where they're, they're optimally, you know, they're excited, they're, they're into it. And a, and a huge number, and a huge number of the tools that I was using, that I was using, was simply trying to give kids a greater a feeling of control under a situation where they otherwise would be pretty stressed. So, Bill, you've you said just now that you've you've seen an increase in anxiety, depression, et cetera, amongst young people, and you know, as the research suggests, and which you, you've found is that a lack of sense of control is a cause of this stress that leads to this anxiety, depression. So, why? So, to me, that sounds like kids feel like they have less control of their lives more today than maybe say 20 years ago. Is, is that a, a, a proper deduction? Do you think that's what's going on? I, I, yes, I do. And I think that one of the great social scientists in our country, Gene Twenge at San Diego State, demonstrated several years ago that young people, you know, adolescents and young adults, have an increasingly external loss of control compared to young people 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And she, she correlated that with this increased vulnerability to anxiety and depression. And a year ago, this Gene Twenge wrote an article in the, the Atlantic, has the, has the smartphone destroyed a generation? Where she's arguing that the smartphone has had such a terrible effect on, on young people's mental health. And from our perspective, it's all because social media, social media just is, is the most externalizing thing you can experience where you, you post something and you wait for other people to judge you. And what else do you think is going on besides the social media? Because, you know, as you guys talk about, there's like this increased pressure at school. Like kids feel like, why do you think kids feel like they have less control at school in their own personal lives? Etc. That's causing this increase in anxiety and depression. Besides the social media aspects, definitely, I, I can tell, we can totally see that. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are probably a few things that immediately come to mind. One is that there, there, our culture has this idea that there's a very narrow path to success, and that it runs through being a top student, and that only top students are going to have successful lives. And so, for for you know, by definition, only ten percent of kids are going to be top ten percent in school. So the other ninety percent you know, are either really stressed up or they just kind of give up and say, why even bother? And for the 10, the 10% who are there, they feel like if I'm top 10, I need to get top five. I'm top five. I got to get top one. Or they're terrified of falling out of the, the winner's bracket and, and think, you know, if, if I, if I screw up, if I screw up anywhere along the line, you know, whatever beautiful life I imagine for myself will simply will evaporate. And, you know, we, we've just created this funnel where it, fe- it feels like to a lot of people that all, all great things in life, you know, the, the wonderful you know, career, the great college, the right spouse, the big home, vacation home, whatever, all goes through, you know, how kids are doing academically. And, of course, we know that that's not true. There, there's so many paths that people can take to find success. 
But those aren't ones that we talk about when the drumbeat at school is grades and scores and grades and scores and grades and scores. And then you certainly compound that by the effects of sleep deprivation. And there are a lot of, you know, everything from tech, use of technology to just the acceleration of life, where, pe- where the, really the adequate model, the proper model for success is to work hard and rest hard. But we feel like we're, we're this culture where we brag about how hard we work. We're constantly busy and then and, and, and sort of competitive martyrdom of who has slept the most, who has slept the least, rather. And so you have this just this toxic brew of people all the time worrying about what other people think about them, of, of what do colleges think, what do my teachers think, what are my grades? And they don't have enough, they don't have enough rest and enough downtime to recover from that and, and to re, you know, regain energy for the next day nor do they have an opportunity to think about themselves as people, you know, as students, as, 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 as members of society in ways that are much broader than just what their GPA and SAT scores are. And, and Bill, I mean, you're a neuropsychologist. What, one of the fascinating parts of the book where you guys get into the detail about what happens to the brain whenever we feel like we're in control or when we don't feel like when we're controlled or when we pattern or live our lives, right, habitually come from this low, in a internal locus of control, how the brain changes or how the brain changes when you come from an external locus of control. So can you, can you kind of walk us through the, the big picture of that? Sure. You know, when, when we think about what, what's the opposite of a healthy sense of control, we think about words like helpless, hopeless, passive, resigned, and overwhelmed. And what the overwhelmed part often means is this, that for us to feel like we're in our right minds and we aren't highly stressed, we can think clearly and keep things in perspective, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is a fairly recently evolved part of the brain that can think logically, plan, organize, put things in perspective, regulates the amygdala. It has a lot of control over the amygdala, which is a very primitive part of the brain, this part of the brain's threat detection system. And it's very alert to anything that could be potentially threatening. And, and if it perceives potential threat, and it could be a physical threat or just somebody looking looking askance at you, that um, it'll start your stress response. And so what we want as kids get older is, is for them to, to have this experience of a healthy regulation of the prefrontal cortex of the amygdala. And uh, th- that there are some kids who come, come out of the womb more easily stressed, and some from genetic factors or, or, or pre- prenatal factors. And th- there are kids who vary uh, a lot in terms, just from a, in, in terms of genetically, in, in terms of, of how reactive their amygdala is, how sensitive to threat, how they process the, the neurotransmitter serotonin, really has a, 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 can make a big difference in, in determining how easily stressed they are and how easily that, that, that amygdala can basically start to regulate the rest of the brain as opposed to the prefrontal cortex regulating the rest of the brain. Gotcha. So, sort of the big point of your book is, okay, we want, the, if the prefrontal cortex is what keeps the amygdala in check, if we want to develop that prefrontal cortex, we have to allow our kids to use it. And you do that by allowing them to make choices, sometimes even dumb choices. <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty big fans of, of, of we think that it's really helpful, Brett, for, for parents to think pretty early on that it's the kid's life. And that with often we don't even we don't necessarily know what's in a kid's best interest, and also we, we don't know if a kid's trying to make the decision. We don't always know what's best, and we've found that if we help kids think th- things through carefully, we, we say, "I want you to make an informed decision," 
And we, 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 th- we insist that they think through the pros and cons with this. They even map out you know, the, the pros and cons of a decision. They can make a good decision for themselves as we do almost all the time. But uh, this is kind of interesting because so this is, it's about a sense of control, right? And I feel like right. parents, the reason why they don't let their kids, they kind of like put their kids on that path and like encourage them like, okay, grades matter, school matter. You need to do this, do that. Because like parents want to feel in control, right? Yeah, um, but exactly, by, exactly. But by doing that, like you're, you're hindering your child's ability to develop their own sense of control. Well, that's exactly right. And it's a little bit, you know, only one person gets to control the remote control, right? <laughs> you know, and, and people fight for it. And, and, and it's certainly because, because as parents, we want, we want to protect our kids. We want them to be happy. We want them to be successful. It's hard it's hard to ever watch your kids stumble, particularly if you can see it coming. But, 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 you know, wisdom comes from experience and experience comes from bad decisions, right? And, and we have kids who are, who are absolutely perfectionistic and they're terrified of making a mistake and in part because they've never made one. And so we want kids to make decisions and then, and, and sometimes they'll make the wrong decision because they made, they made what they thought was the best decision. But we want to tell kids that we have confidence in your ability to make good decisions and that if you make a mistake, when you make a mistake, really, that have confidence that you'll figure out the, be- the, the, the best plan from there. And we, we need to have that experience over and over, you know, to develop, you know, our decision-making abilities and, and to your point, to, to give our prefrontal cortex a chance to develop. And it's, it's just hard as parents to sit there and watch and know that this m- might be a train wreck coming. But this is why we have an entire chapter in the book about being a non-anxious presence that, you know, that just because you can see a problem coming and you could do something about it doesn't necessarily mean you want to, you know, experience is a heck of a, is a a heck of a teacher. And rarely, I think, do, 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 you know, do parents, much like teachers, much like political leaders, get a lot of credit for avoiding a problem that someone else never saw coming. We're probably better off letting kids, you know, experience some of these things along the way and be there to help them if they want it, when they want it, rather than jumping in and never, never letting them suffer, suffer anything that might be a bruise or a bump or a skin knee. And, and Brad, I'll add that you know, we think that, that I, I tested a kid of a humorist years ago who said we really shouldn't call it raising children. We should call it lowering parents because it's, it's hard. And we think that one of the things that makes it particularly hard is the idea that somehow we're, we're responsible as parents to make sure our kids' lives turn out a certain way, that, that, that we'll be able to make them do this or that. And we think that our, our experience is that it's, it's very liberating for parents to really realize, I really can't make my kid do stuff. And I don't always know what's in his best interest. And if I communicate to my kid, I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life. And I want you to have tons of practice before I send you off to college. It goes well. The kids want their life to work. And when you entrust them to make decisions, in our experience, they almost always make as least as good decisions as we can make. Yeah, it's funny because we've had a lot of um, podcast guests come on and talk about, you know, historical figures. And what always strikes me is, is how parenting style has changed. Because, you know, you have some of these guys, like take like a Jack London. We've had, we had a, a guy, Earl Labor, he's a Jack London biographer. And you talk about, you hear like what Jack London did as a, like a 14 year old or a 15 year old. He was like a, an oyster pirate in San Francisco, <laughs> you know, just like stealing oysters from, you know, other oysters. And like, you know, it is, it's, they make a great college essay, these days. <laughs> right? Awesome. But like his, his his parents were like, "Yeah, that's fine." Like he, they didn't probably didn't know what he was doing, but like they just like whatever. Go. But then now we have this thing. It's like that would never happen. Like a fifteen year old being an oyster pirate in America. 
Right, right. I mean, we have this have this idea. Uh, kids, kids, you know, we think that kids. Part of the reason that kids have so little control of their lives is they don't play very much anymore. And and, and a couple of generations ago, kids would spend all weekend outside. Their parents had no idea where they were, what they were doing, playing with their friends, and they were completely charged in charge of their life. And that just not not very long ago, uh, many high school kids, if not most, had part time jobs and they're 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 working things or uh, they had a lot of t- unsupervised time that doesn't really exist so much anymore. And what's interesting, I mean, as I was reading this, you know, I, this whole I think the most powerful idea I got from this is that okay, we want our in order to be successful as an adult, you have to have this developed prefrontal cortex where you can kind of you know, control those impulses and those that anxiety, et cetera, that comes up when you're not sure. But in order to do that, you have to exercise it and use it. But what's funny how we parent these days is, you know, we're, we're very controlling of our kids, make sure they're safe, make sure they're happy, make sure they have a great experience as a kid. And then when they hit 18, they're like, all right, kid, get out there and make your own choices and do adult <laughs> things. Um, yeah. I know you've never done this before, but you'll figure it out. And then, and then the kids, then the kids come to you, Bill, with you know, college kids, anxious, depressed, etc. Oh, part of the reason that that we focus at the end of the book on on this idea of who's ready for college is we we've both seen so many kids who have gone off to college and and failed in their first year, They're just not not been successful at all. And most of those kids really had very little experience in running their own lives before they went to college. And we, we, we want kids to have tons of experience. We, we, I, I tell parents, don't send your kids to college unless he's had six months. He's demonstrated for six months that he can pretty much run his own life because that's what he's going to have to do in college. Right. So let's talk about how, how we parent in order to help this. So we're not, you're not advocating, just so you're clear. You want kids to make choices, but you're not telling them, you know, a 12-year-old, you're going to just do whatever you want. I mean, how, cause like when parents hear like, Oh yeah, like kids make choices. They're like, well, what, what, what are we talking about here? Are they going to, we're going to let them do whatever they want or are we going to put constraints or limits? How, what does this look like? Well, you know, in, in a, in a workplace, everyone has autonomy with this job, but you don't get to do whatever you darn well please. Right. You know, people have to stay in their own lanes a little bit, you know, and, and as, as what kids are, the choice that the kids can appropriately have when they're three or four might be, do you want to wear this shirt? Do you want to wear that shirt? Do you want to play this game or that game? You know, do you want to have read that story or, you know, that, that time before after dinner or whatever? You know, when they're 12, you know, their choice is about, well, you know, what do you want to be doing? Do, do you want to play soccer? Do you want to play baseball? You know, how, how do you want, what do you want to be doing on the, on the, on the weekend? But it isn't, it isn't the idea that a 12-year-old gets to run the whole, run the whole household. I and mean, that's really an abrogation of, of parental responsibility. It's just that there are, there are tons of things that kids can and really should do that we as parents want to make those decisions for them simply because we're more, we're, we're better at it because we have more experience doing it, right? It's so much quicker for us to do, to make that judgment or that decision for them. And then, and it's just, it's a mistake because anything that you want someone to be able to do well, you have to be tolerant of him doing it poorly first, because that's how we learn. And Brett, there, there's at least 60 years of research on parenting styles and, and just, Conclusively, the, the the most effective parenting style is authoritative 
as opposed to authoritarian or laissez-faire. An authoritative parents means that we, we, we set limits, and, and we, but we negotiate more with kids, and we, we, we teach, treat kids respectfully, like they have a brain in their head, and we, we value their opinions, and we want them to make decisions. But it's not laissez-faire, it's not anything go, we're very much involved in their life. And the, the, certainly laissez-faire parenting, where you're kind of on your own kid, is terrible. And that's not at all what we're suggesting. We want parents to be very intimately involved in their kids' lives. We just don't want them to think that they're supposed to control everything. Yeah, I like how you describe parenting should, you should see yourself as a consultant, which I thought was an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, very much. I mean, we have this story in the book about my my wife was, my wife was an educator, was helping my son when he was in middle school with with some assignment. And then she says, well, why didn't you hand this in or do whatever it was? And he sort of froze and, 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 and looked at her and said, well, because you didn't remind me. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, time up, you know, people. And I sort of jump in the middle of this and say, look, kiddo, you don't throw your mom under the bus. You, she's not responsible for your doing this work because it's your work. You know, all appearances are the contrary. This is your life. You're responsible for doing this. And I looked at her and I said, look, he has every reason to expect that you remind him because you always have. And my wife is like a lot of moms, just super organized. She can run, you know, my kid's life, my life, Bill's life, probably your life if she, if you, you could give her the work from the time. And, but, but just because she can doesn't mean that she should. And so we, we just really try to change and said, well, you know, would you like help with that? And rather than we just change the language from shouldn't you be doing your homework? Shouldn't you do this? Why aren't you doing that too? Would you like some help? Would you like me to look at that? Anything I can do? No, dad, I got it. Okay, great. Well, I've never had the experience of giving people advice that they've just told me they don't want and having that go well. But by constantly saying, anything I can do to help tonight? No, no, I got it. He knows that I'm always there. He knows that my wife is always there. And sometimes he asks for our advice and sometimes he doesn't. And what, what happened, we tell this story in a, we talk with schools. I had, we had the experience about a month ago. My wife and I were out for a walk. My kid is in, he's a sophomore now, had a school dance. And he got invited to that party that's after the dance. You know, the cool thing is, my kid, like, so dad is a little geeky, so this is a new experience for him. And we're out for a walk, and he says, hey, dad, I got a question. And I said, yeah, kiddo, what, what's your question? He said, so I'm going to that party after the dance. I said, yeah. And he said, what do I do if people are drinking alcohol there? And inside, I'm doing this little victory dance, like, oh, I'm a great dad. My kid just asked me about drinking, right? And I, but I tried to play it cool. But I'm convinced that if, if I had had the last four years since middle school being on him about every single homework assignment, he never would have brought that kind of question up to me. I want to be a consultant to him. To Bill's point, I want to be an authority so that when he has real questions, he asks my advice. But, but it's, it's a respectful way. It's an asking way. It's on, on my supporting him, not my sort of jamming it down his throat and making him feel like someone else is in charge of his life. So um, this means, this sort of consultant approach to parenting, let's take homework as an example or school as an example. This could mean, you know, if we're trying to put the onus on the child to make, take control of that part of his life, this could mean that he doesn't do his homework or he forgets or he doesn't really engage in school. How do you as a parent maintain that sort of unanxious presence when you see, oh my gosh, my kid's got a 1.5 GPA and he's about to get expelled for <laughs> yeah, academic. Yeah. yeah. So what, how do, how do, yeah, how do you so, manage that part? So I, I wrote uh, about this idea of a parent as consultant for the first time 30 years ago. And, and it was a response to, in my clinical practice, seeing family after family who would say stuff like, God, I dread dinner time because after dinner, it's two and a half hours of World War III trying to get my kid to do his homework. 
And, and it, it just seemed like such a waste of life. And also that what I noticed is that if parents spent 80 units of energy trying to get the kids to do his homework, the kids spent 20. And I thought, this isn't helping anybody. And so what I suggested was that you, you say to your kid, and this is the, this is the uh, title of the second chapter of our book, you say to your kid, I love you too much to fight with you about your schoolwork. And I'm willing to help you any way I can. I'm willing to get a tutor if we need a tutor. I'm willing to support you a thousand percent. But I'm not willing to act like it's my responsibility. I'm not willing to fight with you all the time. You're the most precious thing in the universe to me. Why would I want to have all this stress and tension about your friggin' homework? You know, and, and our experience is that when you change the energy and you say that I love you, I support you, but I'm not going to try to force with you, I'm not going to fight fight with you about this, that kids, for the most part, they don't necessarily are they aren't necessarily Johnny on the spot the next day, but before very long, they start to get the idea, and just as Ned's kid, they start to ask their kids their their, their parents for help. And but but I, I have two kids who got PhDs and neither one of them had I, I never knew about their assignments unless they asked me. I always took this this I'm I'm willing to help anything I can do attitude, and it just works. And with families over the years that, that have have done this, it just works. We're gonna take a quick break for your Warchmar sponsors. All right, when it comes to our wardrobe, our underwear is probably the last thing we think of, but a pair of good fitting underwear can really just make your day a whole lot better. But most underwear, not made for anatomy. Saks underwear has changed the underwear game by making underwear that's designed for men. First, it starts off with their ballpark pouch. It's a 3D support system, unlike anything else in men's underwear today. It does exactly what you think it does. Keeps everything separate down there. No more sticking, chafing, friction. It's just fantastic. This comes in really handy if you live in a hot and humid place and that that's an issue for you. Not so with the ballpark pouch. Also, they use moisture wicking fabric that keeps you dry and cool and repels BO. Lots of great stuff. My favorite are the kinetic boxer briefs. Feel great. They look great. Great for working out when you're outside on a hot summer day. If you want to try Saks underwear, they've got a limited offer going on for my listeners. You can get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase, but you got to use my promo code manliness at checkout. So here's what you do. Go to saxunderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's. S-A-X-X underwear.com slash man. Manliness, use promo code manliness at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, saxunderwear.com, promo code manliness. Go do it. Also by Grasshopper. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal life separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local toll-free and vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out running errands, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number. Set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team. Get your voicemail transcribed and emailed to you. It's a game changer. Makes voicemails so much easier. Work from anywhere with call forwarding. Make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app. Also another feature I really like and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshoppers offers an easy instant setup and 24-7 custom support all without long-term contracts. You want to try this today and get $20 off your first month by using my special URL. Go to grasshopper.com slash manliness. Again, grasshopper.com slash manliness. Get $20 off your first month. Sign up today. And now back to the show. What about say, I mean, one thing parents worry about is like, I want to help my child develop a, a solid work ethic. I want them to be contributing members to the household, right? Yep. What if you have kids that just like, eh, they're not cleaning the room. They're not, because like you did that for them, right? For most of, so how do you, what can parents do to, to shift that? So they, kids like had that intrinsic motivation to help out and do things around the house. So I think that 
as much as possible, we're, we're big fans of, of family meetings or other people call it collaborative problem solving. In our book, we call it collaborative problem solving. Whereas it's, because you can't make a kid clean up his room, I mean, all they have to do is just go spread ego on the floor and you, you can't make him clean it up. And I think making peace with that and not trying to force is helpful. But I think that, that, that we talk about it. We, we talk about it and we, we bring it up and say, I know that, that either it's boring to you or that, that it's stressful to you to clean up your room. But it's, it's really stressful to me when I see that this level of disorganization. And, and I think that as kids get older, particularly, I think we, we want to be respectful. And, and, and various as adults, we have differing levels of, of need for neatness and, and, and tidiness. And I think that that is parents. My own daughter, who was always an outstanding student, her room like a, looked like a schizophrenic's room just in high school. And I'd help her clean her up once a month because she wanted me to help her. But I think that fighting over that kind of thing, cleaning up your room, is usually not very effective. Although other other uh, we want kids to contribute to their families. And that's why we think that having family meetings where we talk about what chores do you want to do? You map out, here's what needs to be done in the family. What do you want to do? We're asking, getting those kids some choice about how they contribute to the family it tends to be pretty effective. There's an argument to be made that that, that everyone deserves is, you know, you're, you're, everyone deserves some space of his own, right? You know, that your kid's room is your kid's room. And so, you know, it may, he can't leave his you know, his sneakers on the kitchen table or she can't have her, you know, arts bus strewn all over the kitchen floor because these are common spaces, right? And you can have, you can have, again, with a family meeting, come to some agreement about what we're going to clean this up every night or we're going to clean this up once a week or, you know, what, what, the, what the kind of negotiated rules are there. But within his own room probably deserves a little more, a little more latitude in part because I've just, I've, it's not been my experience that harping on kids over and over will make them intrinsically want to do that. I mean, I certainly, I, th- I think most of your listeners, if they reflect on it, there's a, there's a pretty darn good chance that the, the level of cleanliness of their rooms as teenagers was, was a good deal below what they're, what they're hoping their kids would do now. And part of that is, you know, development of prefrontal cortex, you know, I mean, <laughs> as you get more mature, it may, it's just intrinsically a little bit easier to be organized and to keep things organized. Uh, as we've been talking about this idea of sense of control, right? A, a lack of sense of control, feeling helpless, causing anxiety, depression, et cetera. But like, is there too much like of a good thing? Like, is it, I mean, I can imagine like if you feel like you are in control of your life, you, that could become unhealthy because you think, okay, anything that happens to me, I am responsible for. If I work really hard and I do all these things to get in a good college, I don't get in a good college. Cause you might not, cause it might be something, you know, that nothing to do with you. It's just like they ran out of space. You're, you're, right? you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if, if someone, if, if, if someone has, you know, if, if, if there's an illness, you don't say, well, maybe if you'd gotten there two weeks early, you say there was nothing you could do about it. You know, the, the cancer was, the cancer was, was coming, right? Or if someone has a car accident, it hurts to say, you know, it was just, it was just bad luck. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? We don't, we don't blame things with bad things. We don't blame people when bad things happen because it's just, it's, it's, it's too unkind and it's, and it's, it's not, it's not, it's not fair and it's not true. And the same thing with, with college admissions. I mean, people have this idea, if I do everything perfectly, then I can get into the college of my dreams or go to an Ivy school or whatever. But there's so much uncertainty and unfairness built into the system. And, you know, and, and so, I mean, I, I, this is the work that I do on and on. I said, 
a lot of teenagers have this idea that college admissions is made by these sort of gray haired wise people who've done this forever. And they're just, and they, they can sort of, you know, like Job, they, they are they, you know, King Solomon, they can sit there and see it. They can, rather, they can see everything and know exactly what the right decision to make is. But the reality is these are human beings and many of them 25 years old. And it depends where was your essay read the third one they read or the, or the 223rd one that they read. And, you know, people, people make mistakes, people get tired. And so the idea, so we simply say that, yeah, you're not going to get into a good school unless you, unless you show that you're going to be a successful learner there, but you could be a highly successful learner. And it's just the luck of the day that you did, you didn't get into that, that the first choice school. But the good news is there are a lot of great schools that could be, you know, you can be just as successful, you know, going to your third choice school as you can to your first choice school. And just I'll add to that. Uh, what we emphasize in the book is that it's not a sense of control doesn't mean that I, I, I'm supposed to be able to control everything. That it, what it means is, is that I have this, I'm not passive, I'm not resigned, I'm not just a pawn in the universe, that I can make decisions, I can direct my own life. And, and certainly all of us, but part of wisdom is the kind of serenity prayer idea that I want to understand, be able to, to, to handle the things I can control and, 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 and be able to make peace with the things I can't. And I think that's a huge part of what we want to help our kids develop is that wisdom about what, what I have control over and what I don't. Right. And you can't, they can't learn that without them making choices or seeing firsthand like their actions even though they might control of what they do, they don't have control over the results or the outcome oftentimes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, part of why sports are so great. I mean, you, you win some and you lose some, and sometimes you can affect the outcome and sometimes you, you can't, you know, you're one of many players or the ref made a bad decision or the you know, ball took a screw, screw ball bounce. And it's just, you know, that's, that's part of life. And we, you know, we, we get up, we dust ourselves off. We go on and look for the next adventure. All right. So we've been talking about things we can do to, help our children develop their prefrontal cortex, this ability to have act on their own, be autonomous, figure out what, you know, what things they can control, what things they don't have control over. But you also talk about other things that we need to do as well. And one was interesting is downtime. Why is downtime so important for kids? And what should that downtime look like? Well, we talk about really not just downtime, but radical digital downtime. And it's the idea that the world is so fast paced Today and people are busy so much of the while, and then, and then oftentimes when they when they're not busily busy doing something active, we pick up our phones, our tablet, our computer, and, and we find something something to, to constantly engage ourselves. And it's a, it's a real problem, part because there's a, a brain network called the default mode network, and it it's a it's a whole system use a bunch of parts of our brain, and when and, and, and it activates when we're not actively doing anything else. And the default mode network, when it engages, we, we have its, its perspective taken. We think about ourselves and our place in the world. We think about our past. We think about our future. It helps us develop a coherent sense of our, ourselves as a human being. It helps develop empathy. And, and it's something that's really implicated in the work of Gene Twenge thinks that part of this constant increase in this, in this really spike, particularly in the last decade, of, of anxiety and depression and narcissism is that we don't have enough time alone with our own thoughts, just to kind of think stuff through. And particularly as an ad, as adolescents, a huge part of adolescence is trying to figure out who am I? Who am I trying to become? What do I think about the world? My, my parents have told me this or told me that, and I've learned this from church or from school or whatever, but, but really, what do I think about this? And it's incredibly valuable work, again, to 
to kind of develop a sense of, of who you are. And we worry a lot about kids that, that, that they just don't have enough time where they can really be bored and left alone with their own thoughts. And so we, we talk about the importance of, of, of building and time when you aren't doing anything, when you have daydreaming, you know, and just space out when you, when you, when you can meditate and just, and, and just, and, and which is different from ruminating, right? It's not going over and over and sort of beating yourself up, but it's much more sort of letting your, letting your thoughts wander. And we, we, we have a chapter called Radical Downtime where we talk about the, 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 um, the, the, the mind-wandering and meditation, which we think are when you're awake, two of the, the really w- ways of recharging your brain associated with creativity, problem-solving, uh, with, with lowering stress. And also we have a chapter on the third kind of radical downtime, on sleep. And and arguably, if we want kids to, to to if kids want to perform better, and we want our kids to perform better, the, the single most thing that we could do, the single most important thing we can do, is to figure out a way to help them get more sleep. And when the people started to study the sleep deprivation in, in adolescents in, in the mid '90s, continuing to the early 2000s, they were they were de- it was devastating how how. Uh, sleep-deprived young people were. And it's worse now that, that, that 90% of kids who have phones are sleeping with them. So how do we, you know, in order to encourage this, we want to encourage this radical downtime in our children, but at the same time, we want to act as consultants, right? You know, sort of your call parenting. How do we, I mean, is it nudge is the right word, kids to, you know, put away the, the devices? Like, do we set limits? Do we use sort of that authoritative parenting style by setting limits and then within those limits the kids can decide what they do i think that's i think that's right i think that's right and and, and honest and a and big part of this is is mod is modeling this as well i mean you know parents are are are, are, are over consuming technology nearly as much as teenagers are it's just that our brains are are, are a little bit more hardwired than than that is the developing teen brain but i think it's 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 good for everyone's brain and it's certainly good for our relationships to have times when, when we're, we're fully, fully paying attention to the thing that we're doing or paying attention to one another, and we don't have the distracting effects of technology. So, I mean, I've sat out with my family, and, and what are rules? Well, there, 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 there are no digital devices at, at mealtimes. You know, you don't have it at the ki- kitchen table, right? For, for me, cell phones charge in the kitchen. Every, every, <laughs> every single student I work with ends up at some point getting a version of this lecture where... Kids will come in, they didn't do well on this, you know, they did a practice test and hadn't gone well. I said, well, tell me what was going on. And, and it, you know, and that, or did at home, were you distracted? No, I wasn't distracted. Well, how did you time yourself with your mom? Well, I was using my cell phone, but, 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 my, but, but I had to turn, I wasn't looking at it. And there's a, there's a study in the, in the book um, where they found that three second interruptions would double people's error rates. And that's just the time of looking at a text, not even typing response, just being interrupted with a ping. And so I said, and so I then go on my lecture to the kids about why you're going to take, you know, you're going to do your homework without a cell phone around. And, and then I always ask, and where does your cell phone, where does your cell phone sleep at night? What, what, what do you mean? Well, when you go to bed, where's your cell phone? Well, by my kid, by, by my bedside table, why do you ask? Then I launch into literature of how disruptive it is to sleep and it, and, 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 and causes an issue of anxiety and depression, da, da, da. And then the Hail Mary of a desperate teenager is always, but, 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 but I use it for my alarm clock. And then I smile and I look at them and say, well, that's great, but let's be honest. I think you use your parents for your alarm clock and 
you're telling me that, you know, your parents can be, you can pay whatever it costs, you know, a thousand bucks now for a cell phone, you know, a hundred bucks a month for an iPhone, a hundred bucks a month for the data usage of it, but no one can come up with 20 bucks for a proper alarm clock. So I buy a kid an alarm clock every week just because here's, here's your alarm clock now. And I'm going to tell your parents, you now have an alarm clock. What's your favorite color, by the way? And your, and your cell phone should charge in the kitchen. So the, the problem with these technologies is they are by design incredibly immersive, incredibly addictive, and it's just really hard to put them down. And that's, again, true for teens and for adults. And so we think that the best way to do this is just to have rules that after nine o'clock, you put your cell phone in the kitchen to charge. On Sunday mornings, nobody has a cell phone. We're, we're spending time together. We're going for a walk. We're having brunch. We're doing whatever. And just to build in times in our week and in our, in our day and in our week when we do things without any technology at all. And I'll just add that that family rules were great. So setting, working as kind of democratically to set up rules in the family. And the challenge that many parents have is when kids break the rules. And I think that what we our experience is is that especially with teenagers with and technology, if teenagers kind of uh, are sneaking their phone into the room or, or they're using they're they're, they're playing Fortnite many more hours than we agree on, is healthy for them. Then, then we, we it, it's very hard to set limits on them. We oftentimes, because they're more technologically savvy than we are, and so what we talk about in the book, we come back to this collaborative problem solving. Where we, we 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 use our authority where we can, in the sense of, of I, I can't in good conscience. I can't, I, I feel like I'm a ter- terrible parent if I'm paying for your cell phone usage and, and you're sleeping with it at night. There's all this research that suggests that if it's not turned on, if it drops your sleep, if you have a piece of pottery that looks like a cell phone, it disrupts your sleep. And, and I, I, can't, I can't in good conscience pay, the, pay for your char- phone charges. So if you want to get a part-time job and pay for it, I can live with that, but I can't do it. So you, if you want to keep your phone and want me to pay for it, it charges in the kitchen. And but with with adolescents with virtually any kind of issue, we, we more and more take this collaborative problem solving approach where we start with we try to start with empathy about how much they love their phone or that they love their the Fortnite or social media, and also our concern that we can't be good parents if we let them use it endlessly. And we, we agree on some we, we we negotiate and then we renegotiate limits. So you mentioned Bill earlier in the, the our conversation how every kid's different. So some kids they're pretty resilient just out of the womb, right? But other kids they're a little more, you know, sensitive, touchy, I guess is the example. Is an example. What happened like how should your parenting or how should this adjust like how we're acting as a parent consultant if your kid say is a little more, I don't know, on the high strung is the right word. Yeah, yeah. Um is I mean are there are the things you should probably be more aware of and, and consider when you're when you're working or interacting with them? Yes, I think that that many kids are from either genetic or prenatal reasons, as I said before, they come out of the womb where they're just more easily stressed. You know that, that they they look like they have a very active amygdala, reactive amygdala, and and from the time they're little, I mean, we 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 adapt to them. We have to kind of adapt to really sensitive kids, just as infants. You know, they they have trouble sleeping. We get we get we get good at figuring out what they need, what they're telling us they need. And I think the thing that's hardest, if, if, if kids tend to be on that anxious side, is that, that our urge as parents is to protect them, is, is, to, make, is to try to, to make sure that they, they don't experience too much anxiety. And so that we, we tend to protect them and, and enable them to avoid 
things that they're anxious about. And all the research on anxiety over the last several years and treating anxiety has indicated that that what we the, the best way to overcome anxiety is to face your fears. And I think that this may be the hardest thing for parents of kids who are sensitive and easily stressed. And, te- and the, the, the major manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. We tend to avoid the things that, would, that make us anxious. And I think that so that, that part of what we talk, talk about in our chapter on being a non-anxious presence is, is that as, as much as we can manage our own anxiety, that really helps uh, kids, but in part because it helps us be, be, be encouraging and allowing them to manage stressful situations themselves, not, not letting them avoid and, and just being, being assertive about let, letting them experience things that are stressful because that's how you become resilient. You, you handle a stressful situation on your own with support as necessary, but that's how kids become resilient. That's how they, they, they develop high stress tolerance. Yeah, I think that was an, uh, a really important takeaway. A lot of this is just modeling, right? What, how you want your kids to behave. And so something that I've done I try to do with my kids at least is when I'm aware of a situation that's causing me a lot of stress, I kind of walk them through, okay, this is how I initially responded. That wasn't good. So I did this. I'm hoping that sort of sinks in. I don't know yet, um, but that's kind of something I've done. Well, you know, I, I used to do the same thing with my kids, Brett. And and after a while, they'd say, they, they, my daughter would typically say, I don't want to hear that psychological crap anymore. But, <laughs> but, 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 but then you know, the next week, I'd overhear her talking with a friend on the phone and telling the friend exactly what, you know, what, what, she, what she heard me model. You know, that, that exactly. I, I just, I think it's so important. We help kids so much by thinking out loud in terms of, of coming up with a plan. Whereas you, you're talking about when we handle stressful situations, why don't we, if, if we're good at, if we're good at putting things into positive perspective, seeing things and, and, and not letting things overwhelm us, let's, let's teach kids how we do it. And one of the best ways to do it is simply think out loud. Right. Well, Ned, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I have a, I have a daughter who's, who's, uh, who's one of these kids that Bill describes, who's, she's more, a more sensitive disposition. She's, she's anxious. And you see that in rigid, with her rigidity. And, you know, to Bill's point, you know, with, with, with effective therapy people, with this particular CBT, we, we, we try to help kids face things that are, that are challenging to them or stress, stressful to them, but do it in a measured dose. And the challenge is, I think, with, uh, with a lot of kids is it's either all or nothing. And, and as parents, you kind of want to throw kids in the deep in the pool and say, you just, you just got to face this. But, but if, if we are less anxious ourselves, we can, we can negotiate and help them figure out a way to face this and really, you know, kind of problem solve or be or be sort of entrepreneurial about. Well, it's not it's not all or nothing. What's that? What's that middle ground? My my daughter just got a dog, and the first couple of days we were pretty rocky, and she said, "Well, I can't have this dog. I don't want to do it. I just want to give her back." And oh my goodness! And what it turned out is that there were some specific things there that that made her really concerned. Like she 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 didn't want to have to get up at six thirty in the morning. To walk the dog, um, you know, was that something mom and dad were up anyway? Could they just let the dog out for five minutes to pee, and then she would take it on a longer walk forty-five minutes later? Well, that's a perfectly reasonable thing. I wasn't prepared to take the dog for forty-five minute walk, but to let the dog out for two minutes, sure, you know. And and so when 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 kids are fearful, they're they will get very they'll get they can be very rigid and very defensive. And no, 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 I simply won't do it. And, and oftentimes, there's, it's not the whole thing that they're afraid of. It's a, it's a piece of it that they don't have a solution to. 
And by talking it through with them, we can figure out this, we can get, get to the root of what's the real thing they, that they can't find a solution to. And we can help them find it. And then they can, and then they can face that, develop, develop some resiliency by, by getting through with some support and a little bit of discomfort, something that otherwise would be overwhelming. Well, Bill, Ned, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? It's the selfdrivenchild.com. Selfdrivenchild.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, that, they, that's easy. They I love it. The book. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, most people don't have. A, <laughs> I love how it's just so easy uh, about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bill, Ned, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, our, our pleasure is completely. Thanks so much. My guests today were William Sticksrud and Ned Johnson. They're the authors of the book, The Self-Driven Child. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about the book at theselfdrivenchild.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash selfdrivenchild, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast and if you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take a minute to give this review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please share the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.